if you, if you want to turn that... Yes, I each other. So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, uh, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against these things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Our other reading is um, from John's Gospel. So um, that is um, on uh, page um, 1064, and it's in chapter 2. It's a well-known reading. Jesus changing water uh, into wine. So it's on page 1064, chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day... Um, a wedding took place in, in, at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 80 to 120 litres. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realise where it had come from though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Morning, everybody. I hope you will not be interrupted, John. It wouldn't be the first time, John. Well, let's pray now as we come to God's word together. 
Father, thank you for the wonderful reminders we've been having this morning that you are the one true God and that you are the King. And that is reason alone to rejoice this morning. It is reason alone to sing songs of praise. And we pray that as we come now to your word, that you would be causing a spring of joy to well up within us as we discover afresh what it means to have you as the king, to have the Lord Jesus Christ ruling and reigning, and to have you present here with us, even in us, by your Holy Spirit. So use this time, we pray, for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so if you've not been with us and you're here for the first time or you're visiting, then just to orient us, we are in the middle of a series thinking about the Holy Spirit, the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. And we're doing that by looking at two things in particular. This side of Christmas, we're looking at the fruit of the Spirit. And then after Christmas, we'll be looking at the gifts of the Spirit. And so we've really slowed down in Galatians 5. And if you were here uh, last week and you're thinking, why on earth? Surely this has gone wrong. We've read the same passage three times in a row now in Galatians chapter 5. That is deliberate. It's to help us to kind of slow down a little bit and really kind of allow ourselves to meditate on what it is that the Spirit is seeking to do in our lives. And so this morning, we're thinking about joy. Now, what word would you use to best describe Christianity? I think actually in our world and in our culture, there are two kind of polar opposite stereotypes. So the one side would say, well, Christianity, the best word is basically that it's dull. It's boring. It's irrelevant. It's sort of incomprehensible. And, you know, church, well, the experience of church is also dull and boring and incomprehensible as well. I was reminded as I was preparing for this sermon of the, I think it's one of the very first Mr. Bean sketches in which Mr. Bean goes to church. If you've never heard of Mr. Bean never seen this sketch, don't worry. You can just write, Mr. Bean goes to church into Google, and it's on YouTube. It is very, very funny indeed. But the whole point is he arrives late to church. He gets bored immediately. And in fact, if, if you're listening, the, the preacher is not actually using words. He's just going, blah, 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 in the background. I mean, it's really absurd. But then he falls asleep. And he falls so deeply asleep that he he falls forward out of his pew onto his knees with his nose pressed against the floor. And the scene ends with him having to keep his eyes open like this as the sermon continues. Well, I'm not quite seeing any of that yet this morning, but it's early days. It's early days. We'll see see how how it goes. But maybe that's sort of one extreme end of what we think of the Christian faith, or what the world may think of the Christian faith. Well, the other end is almost the opposite extreme. And it may not be dull, but it might be what we would call unreal. This is the kind of stereotype of the tele-evangelist with suspiciously white teeth. 
or, or, or the church that feels much more like a rock concert than it does the gathering of God's people in song and praise and worship, or messages that offer you your best life now. It's this kind of slightly unreal version of Christianity where you just think, okay, but, but I'm not sure I'm getting the whole truth from you here. And so those are our two extremes. We've got happy clappy at one end and humpy grumpy at the other end. Which one are you? Good question. I'm not sure. But actually, what I want to suggest is that in the Bible, the most distinctive characteristic, almost, I would say, probably one of them at least, is for the Christian, is joy. But it's not an unreal joy. It is a joy that is still rooted in the reality, the experience of the Christian. I think what, as well as we, as we kind of approach the fruit of the Spirit, what I want to say is that both the kind of happy clappy version and the humpy grumpy version, the two extremes, are both a kind of unreality. And they're sort of produced by us to try and make something happen. But actually, joy is a fruit of the Spirit. It's not manufactured by us. It is produced within us by God. And far from being dull or from being unreal, actually, one of the, one of the descriptions of Christians in the New Testament is that they are sorrowful. If I can get this and get this to work. There we go. Yet always rejoicing. This is 2 Corinthians 6. Sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Now if you have sorrow without joy, well, That just denies the reality of God. But if you have joy without sorrow, that denies the reality of the the experience of living life in a fallen, broken world. But here, for the Christian, there is this strange mixture of sorrowful yet always rejoicing. And that kind of reality can only be produced by the Holy Spirit. Let me just read to you a couple of verses from 1 Peter chapter 1. I'll put them up on the screen. Actually, I think I've got them. Yeah. I'll put them up on the screen, um, and I'll read them from my Bible. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, in his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this, 
you greatly rejoice. Though now, for a little while, you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Now, what's really remarkable is that that is almost exactly the same description, isn't it? Christians who are sorrowful, they may have to suffer grief and all kinds of trials, and yet always rejoicing. Joy. In this all, you greatly rejoice. And that joy is born out of their grasp of the gospel. The hope that God has given them. Not something that they have produced inside of themselves. Just think for a moment of Paul and Silas in the book of Acts. You may remember the story well. It's one of those classic kind of Sunday school tales, isn't it? Paul and Silas, they go to Philippi, they preach the gospel, and they are arrested. They are flogged. They are stripped. They are chained together, and they are thrown into prison. And then we're told at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And all the other prisoners were listening to them. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. And you might say, well, I could never do that, John. I could never be Paul and Silas. If I was thrown into prison, I'd be miserable. I wouldn't be singing songs. I could never do that, John. But that entirely misses the point. None of us could ever do that. This is the kind of thing that is only ever done in the power of the Holy Spirit. It is a fruit of the Spirit in our lives. So here's what we're going to see this morning. The Spirit of joy makes joyful Christians, even in the midst of suffering and sorrow and trials of many kinds. So here's our definition of joy. Now, a a little while ago, we, we preached through the book of Philippians together, and we called the whole series Joy Ride. And this was the definition that we went with at the time, which I thought was really helpful. It sort of made sense of Philippians. It's this, that regardless of our circumstances... Emotions or performance, all is well between the believer and the Lord. So we might say today, just to slightly change the definition, but it, or, or express it in another way, that joy is an unshakable delight in God. For the sheer beauty and worth of who he is, Regardless, regardless of what's going on in our lives right now. Because there are all kinds of fake joys, aren't there? Fake joys that the world kind of tells us are joy. And actually the problem is we use the word joy in all kinds of different ways ourselves. So there's that kind of version of joy that we equate with happiness. And we say, look, if I'm temporarily happy, I've got some sort of emotional high well, then I'm joyful today. 
But that's not what the Bible means by joy. You know, you might sort of say, well, I mean, it's her birthday. Of course she's joyful. Or he's won the lottery. Of course he's joyful. But that's not what the Bible means by joy. It's not a joy that is rooted in our circumstances so that it can go up and down with our emotional kind of thermometer. Or another way that we talk of joy is to say someone just, they're just a joyful person. Or they have a jolly disposition. Do you have a jolly disposition? Some of us do. Some of us don't. Some of us have a kind of resting face that is that of someone who really looks like they're about to punch you in the face. But that is not what we mean by joy. It's not the same thing. Or we might say joy is really a suspension of disbelief. If we want to be joyful, we have to kind of pretend somehow. We have to put a mask on. We have to say, yes, I am joyful today. Regardless of what you've just left behind at home or going back to. But that's a fake joy too. And when we get the joy wrong, we then begin to feel the pressure to have to somehow put on a mask. Somehow play a part. I'm fine, we say. I'm fine. And everything in you is giving exactly the opposite message. I've told this story once before, so forgive me for this, but... I was once running cross-country at home, visiting my parents up in Yorkshire. I decided I was going to go for a long run across the moors. It was New Year, so it was incredibly cold, and it was icy and hard on the ground. And I was running through the heather, and it was basically as kind of, it was a circular route. And so I was about as far as I could possibly be from the car at the point at which this happened. But I was running along. And it was fine, it was cold, but I was staying warm. And then I saw before me that the path kind of snaked through what looked like just a sort of shallow puddle. And as I kind of approached it, I thought, it's fine, I'm wet anyway, just go for it. And as I ran into it, I realized it was a massive bog, and it went straight up to my waist. This awful kind of peaty bog. But it was so bad, it was so cold, that actually the bog itself was frozen over. So as I kind of went into the bog, the ice broke, and it cut my legs all the way up to my knees, like all these slices. And I thought, well, there's nothing I can do. I was wet right through, and I thought, there's literally nothing I can do except keep running. And so I kept running. I was running over the moors, and my legs was kind of turning crimson, The blood was kind of running down them. At which point it started to snow, which was great. So the snow was coming in almost horizontally. There was nobody at all for miles around. And then eventually I saw that there was this little group huddled kind of against the sleet that was coming in horizontally at the time. And they were huddled around, and they seemed to have like a thermos of tea 
and they were just quietly kind of eating their pat lunch. And they saw me approaching them over the hill with kind of blood streaming off my legs. And, 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 and I kind of saw them. I said, hi, 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 how are you doing? Hi, how's it going? And then they looked at me and they went, oh, are you all right? <laughs> what do you think I said? I'm fine. I'm absolutely fine. But I think we sort of live our Christian lives in that way sometimes, thinking that's what joy is. But that's not joy. That's just stupidity. And the Christian really is to be real and yet joyful. All is well with the believer and the Lord, regardless of our circumstances, our experience, our emotions, or our performance. It is this unshakable delight, not in the way things are going, but in God and God alone for the sheer beauty and worth of who he is. And so the opposites of joy, I don't, think it's necessarily unhappiness. Actually, we can experience unhappiness. It's not necessarily grief. We can be grieving and yet joyful. The opposites of joy are really things like hopelessness, self-pity. Those are the kinds of opposites of joy. So where do we turn to see Real joy. Because this feels impossible, doesn't it? It seems that this is an impossible calling for the Christian. Where do we see this kind of joy displayed? And of course, the answer is we see it in Jesus. It's the Sunday school answer that we will be having week after week after week. Uh, And so, let's ask the question. Was Jesus jolly? Would we have called Jesus jolly? Jolly old Jesus. Well, he enjoyed a party. We know that. He spent time with outcasts and with sinners, and they loved him. They loved to hang out with him. There was something magnetic about him. He He knew how to respond to his critics with a very carefully worded joke, actually. But he is also a man of sorrows. He weeps at the grave of Lazarus. He sweats drops of blood in Gethsemane. And he lives his life in the shadow of the cross with his death as his mission. He is sorrowful yet rejoicing perfectly. John, I asked John if he'd read John chapter 2, John's gospel, chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. Because this is the first miracle that Jesus performs as a sign of his mission in his public ministry. 
But if you look at it, if you look at uh, verse 4, well, verse 3, Jesus' mother comes to Jesus. They're they're in the middle of the context of of a party, an amazing celebration, one of the great celebrations that we experience, a wedding banquet. And Jesus' mother comes to him and says, they've got no more wine. And Jesus' answer is weird, isn't it? Woman, why have you involved me? My hour has not yet come. Don't, don't, you know, don't disturb me. I'm thinking about my death. It's basically what he says. Here is Jesus beginning his earthly ministry, his public ministry, and his death is on his mind. He lives the whole of his life in the shadow of the cross to come. But this is a miracle that is all about joy. It's all about joy. The miracle, it just seems almost like a pointless miracle. You kind of think, if you're a utilitarian, you're sort of thinking, well, what is the sort of net value of this miracle? What is it doing in terms of the you know, kind of eternal life of these people involved? All it means is they have a really amazing party. And Jesus is saying, that's the whole point. That's the whole point. That's what I've come to bring. The bar runs dry, and Jesus provides the best wine, the finest wine they've ever tasted. In fact, so much of it that the enormous water jars are almost overflowing. They are are filled to the brim with the best wine ever. So it's an extraordinary moment, isn't it? Because it's the moment of greatest sorrow. Jesus begins his earthly ministry and he knows exactly where it's taking him. And yet it's also a moment of extraordinary joy. And Jesus says, this is the first sign, basically, of what I've come to do. It's a great kind of hint, isn't it, for us that at the moment of greatest sorrow, Jesus will open up the pathway to perfect joy in God. I'll just read to you one verse from Hebrews chapter 12. It says this, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy set before him, He endured the cross, faced with the deepest, darkest trial. Jesus is propelled by joy. So that's the example for us. Sorrowful yet always rejoicing. So just think about that. Think about our own lives. It is impossible for us to follow the example of Jesus. This is not a natural joy. This is not an explainable joy. This is a superpower. But that's precisely the point. It is a fruit of the Spirit. So where does it come from? How do we cultivate this in our lives, joy-driven. Well, I want to give us four Fs, very, very briefly, four Fs, 
four Fs that the gospel provides that, that really cultivate joy in our lives. The first is family. You see, <clears throat> the joy of family is something that the gospel gives us. We, were no, we are no longer on the outside of the family of God. We were enemies. We were outside the family of God. We were not by nature his friends, and yet through the cross, and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, we are made God's children. And so we have his love and his acceptance, and we are welcomed into his family. Second F. Feasting. The joy of feasting. As we come and we're welcomed into God's family, God celebrates and we celebrate with him. Hallelujah. This is what God has done. He has moved us from being outsiders to being members of his family, welcomed in, assured of his love for eternity. And so we sing. And we dance and we skip around. Luke chapter 15 has Jesus telling three parables. The first is of the lost sheep, in which the shepherd goes out and finds the sheep and comes back, and he's so happy, he phones all of his shepherdy friends, and they have a massive party together, like no shepherd on earth would ever have done. And then he tells the story of a woman who loses a coin, and she's looking for the coin, and she eventually finds the coin, and she's so overjoyed, she's so happy, she phones all of her friends, and they all get together, and they have a massive party as well. And then there's a father who's lost a son, and as the son returns, he has the greatest party ever, and and we're told that the angels in heaven rejoice when one sinner repents. The gospel is about feasting together. Faith. The joy of faith. The joy of being able to trust in one who is utterly trustworthy. See, the gospel teaches us that Jesus died in our place on the cross, so that the judgment that should be ours fell on him, so that as we place our faith in Jesus, we escape God's judgment for eternity. We are justified, declared not guilty. And it's a future judgment that God will make on the last day, but it's brought forward right now into the present and the moment we believe. So if you are trusting in Jesus today, then God's verdict on you right now is not guilty. And a future. It's the joy of a future. That it's a verdict now, and yet it's the only verdict that will ever be passed on us. So that we can have total confidence That just as God has started this work in us, he will carry us all the way through this world, through death, and into a new life and an eternity with him. Joy is immovable because God is immovable. 
joy is certain because the gospel is certain. It's unshakable because the promises of Scripture are unshakable. Jesus is the superpower's source. He is the source of joy. And so as one author puts it, true Christianity stares death in the face and sings anyway. It is not unreal. It is not saying death is not there, don't tell me about it, la, 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 la. It is deadly real. So much so that it will stare down death in the face. But it will sing anyway. Because of the joy of family, the joy of feasting, the joy of faith, and the joy of a future. Well, what does all this have to do with the Holy Spirit? I hear you ask. Well, Paul says this. He says, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's not joy in John James. It's not joy in the wonderful life I've created for myself in Northfield. This is joy in the Holy Spirit. I don't know whether you've ever thought about this before, but it's strange, isn't it, that at Pentecost, as the Spirit fills the disciples, they're accused of being drunk. You might think, well, that's a bit of a weird thing. Maybe it was to do with the fact that they were speaking in foreign languages and that kind of stuff. But actually, I guess from an appearance, there is something quite similar and yet completely different about being drunk and being filled with the Spirit. See, one produces Dutch courage, doesn't it? It's a kind of stupid courage. If you drink too much, you do stupid things because you think you're invincible. But the other is a kind of smart courage. It's a courage that comes from knowing that actually there is a joy-fueled, fearless confidence in God that makes us invincible. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, both experiences, being drunk and being filled with the Spirit, could be described as being under the influence. Being under the influence. It's just a very different influence. One is, one is deeply destructive. But the other is deeply fruitful. And maybe another word for under the influence is just dependence. It's actually submission. It's giving one's control over to the Spirit. Or you might even say keeping in step with the Spirit. So Paul says later on in Romans, may the God of hope 
fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him. So that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. He really is the spirit of joy. And as we trust in God, he will fill us with his joy. So the spirit of joy makes joyful Christians. If you're in Christ this morning, if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then the joy of the Lord is your strength. Trust him. Depend on him. In a sense, joy is the supernatural fruit of believing the gospel. Joy is the supernatural fruit of believing the gospel. And sometimes I think we think that going deeper into the gospel, seeking to grasp it more fully, seeking to know the God behind it, is sort of boring. You know, going deep is a boring thing to do. The deep churches are the dull churches. What we want is bounce. Not depth, but bounce. Maybe some of us think, well, bouncy churches, bouncy churches are shallow churches. They're just sort of entertaining churches. But I want to suggest that actually the deeper we go into Christ, the higher we will rise. If you want more bounce, you need more depth. That's the principle of trampolining. And if you want to build that kind of faith, the kind of faith that will really rejoice in God regardless, then you cannot do it by simply chasing the next emotional high. We need to get serious about joy, basically. Because the deeper we go into him, into God, the higher we will rise in our joy of the Lord. It's a command. Rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. It's a command. And yet it's a command that only the Holy Spirit can produce in our lives. Well, welcome to being a disciple of Jesus. Because that's how we're to live every single step we take, in total dependence on him. Now as we finish, just a couple of things as we finish. Maybe that you are someone who has experienced or is experiencing some form of depression. I wouldn't want you to mishear what's being said today, that somehow depression is a sign that we aren't trusting the Lord or is a sign that, you know, we're sort of being unfaithful. Depression is an illness. It's not a failure or a weakness. And actually, as I talk to people who 
have learned how to manage their depression or are in the midst of it in some way or another, then often the testimony of Christians is that it is possible to continue to have an underlying assurance of the love of God even when we're not feeling it. And we are so easily just ruled by our emotions, aren't we? And if, we, if this is true, that the deeper we go into God, the higher we rise, depth and bounce, then actually, the call for us all is to stand in the river of God's grace and allow him to minister to us. And God's river of grace is his ordinary means of grace. It means spending time together as Christians, singing to one another, reading our Bibles and saying our prayers. These are the ordinary means of grace through which God continues to supply his goodness to us. And they are the things that will draw us deeper, deeper into the gospel. Maybe you're someone here this morning who feels like they have lost their joy. Sometimes we can lose our joy for a season. And the answer to that is never just to try harder, is it? Be more joyful. Actually, we may need to be patient with ourselves and with the Lord as we continue to stand in the river of God's grace. But sometimes that loss of joy is explainable if we're honest with ourselves. Sometimes, actually, let's put it this way. If you are a Christian and you are deliberately living with sin in your life, you will not be joyful. It may be that you are battling with unbelief. It may be that you've given up, given up in the battle. You'll lose your joy. Joy is often the first thing to go. It's a bit of a litmus test. Something's wrong. What do I need to address in my life, Lord? Maybe that we have neglected to spend time with Christians and read our Bibles and pray. And all of this is part of what it means when Paul says, keep in step with the Spirit. Return to the river of God's grace. Maybe that's something we want to do this morning. Maybe that's something in the quietness of our own hearts as we, as we respond, as we sing, and as we sing to one another, you just want to say to the Lord, I'm giving these things I've been holding on to back to you. I repent. I believe. Give me joy. Lord, please give me joy. The psalmist says, weeping may stay for the night. 
but joy comes in the morning. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you might draw us more deeply into you. I pray that we might allow ourselves to drink from the riches of your grace, from the truth of the gospel, that we might hear afresh, even from what's been said or sung this morning, we might hear afresh the promises you make to us in Scripture, unshakable, unchangeable promises. And that you would be cultivating within us the supernatural power, the superpower of joy. The kind of joy that is totally unexplainable by our circumstances or by our emotions or even by our own performance, we may look back on the week we've had and think, I have no right to be joyful. Father, I pray that it would not be about rights. It would not be about us. It would be about grace and your Spirit's work in us. So we say, come, Lord Jesus, come, Holy Spirit. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.